Uh, tonight, we're still in our series, uh, Righteousness Revealed in Romans, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 10 tonight, so I'll give you a minute to get there. But I want to welcome everybody here tonight and everybody listening on our podcast channel. And I just want to give you a recap a little bit about last week. Pastor Joy was talking about Paul's anguish for uh, the Jewish people um, because of their non-belief and that he wished he could change his place. If he could change places with them, that he would. So this week, we're going to see a different version. We're going to see Paul praying for those non-believing Jews. And this one asks a question, what will happen if the Jewish people who believed in God but did not believe in Jesus, would they be saved? Since they believed in the same God, would they be saved? No. They wouldn't, because if this were true, Paul would not have worked so hard and sacrificed so much to teach them about Christ, because Jesus is the most complete revelation of God, and we cannot fully know God apart from Jesus. And because God appointed Jesus to bring, bring man and him together, we cannot come to God by any other plan except through Jesus Christ. It was Paul's desire in his prayer to God for Israel that they may be saved. The Jewish people, like everyone else, could only find salvation through Jesus Christ. And that their righteousness was in Jesus, their faith in Jesus. You would think that Israel as a nation would have been eager to expect and receive Jesus, their Messiah. They were prepared for him. And Paul uses Israel as an example to reveal what man's heart was and his desire, establishing their own righteousness and ignoring what God says about righteousness. God had sought to prepare the nation, but when Jesus came, what did they do? They rejected him. They rejected him as their Messiah. In John 1.11, it says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Paul was eager for each of his Jewish brothers and sisters to believe in Christ and to receive salvation by faith. And God, our God, is truly an equal opportunity Savior, isn't he? He offers salvation to everyone who believes. And giving the Gentiles this invitation to salvation while giving the Jews the same opportunity as well. And to be sure, there was a faithful remnant in this nation. They were looking forward to the Messiah's arrival, such as Simeon and Anna. But the majority were not ready when Jesus came. So how do we explain this tragic event? Paul goes on to explain this. He was talking in chapter 9. He shared his agony over this, over Israel's rejection of Jesus. And now he's going to share his prayers that they might be saved. In Romans 10, Paul begins with a heartfelt desire as he prays for Israel to be saved and reveals Christ as Savior. So if you have your Bibles, it will be in Romans 10, chapter 10, verse 1. And it says this, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. His prayer was a humble plea. Paul is expressing his desire after pouring out his soul in anguish for their salvation. He was pouring out a prayer for the lost. Do we ever experience that? Do we ever have the desire to pray for the lost to come to Jesus? 
Do our hearts break for the lost? Do our hearts break for what breaks God's heart? Paul wanted to experience this full satisfaction of the Jewish people coming to the Lord, them being saved, everyone. And this should be our desire as well. And we should live a life of prayer and that people would know and receive Jesus Christ in their life, the lost. There was a time, though, when Paul would have agreed with the people that the Jewish people didn't need saving. Remember, he opposed the gospel, and he considered Jesus an imposter. The Jewish people considered the Gentiles in need of salvation, right? Not us, but them. They needed salvation, but certainly not the Jews. His opinion changed as he experienced and he encountered Jesus Christ. And our lives should do that as well. Our lives should all experience a change and a transformation as we encounter Jesus into our lives. We should never be the same after we experience Jesus. But Israel, they did want to change. They wanted to change. They were, would have been happy for a political change. They would have been happy for salvation from Rome, the government, Right? But Israel did not feel that they needed a spiritual salvation on their own because of their self-righteousness. They had this self-righteousness. And Jesus points out this wrong attitude in this parable. In Luke 18.9, it says this. In Luke 18.9, this is the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it says that to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like these other people. The robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast, or even like, I fast, and even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Their self-righteousness. It's what we think about ourselves. It's the head. It's called stinking thinking is what it really is. It was what they thought about. They didn't think that they needed saving. Someone once said there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who wake up in the morning and say, good morning, Lord. Thank you for this day. And there are those who wake up in the morning and say, good Lord, it's morning. (laughs) Right? The meaning of this is very simple. The Pharisee prayed about how good he was, but the tax collector asked for God's mercy because he was a sinner. Jesus said it was the tax collector who went home justified before God. The good news of this parable is that the role of that tax collector is available to all of us. 
Because every one of us is a sinner. And we all fall short of God's glory. Our God who loves us and he is ready and willing to save us and to forgive us. This parable invites us to experience the freedom that comes from casting our own self-righteousness and throwing ourselves into the loving, gracious, and forgiving and merciful arms of our Heavenly Father. And then in verse 2, he goes on to say this, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. He praises them. Paul had something good to say about their enthusiasm for God. They were zealous. They had a zeal for God. And the Jewish people still have this zeal for God today. Rather than living by faith, the Jews established customs and traditions in addition to God's law, trying to make themselves acceptable to God in his sight. It was human effort trying to do that. There was this zealous work. What it was is the works of their hands. The things that they were trying to do for Jesus instead of what they were doing with Jesus. So many times we want to work for Jesus that we forget about what to do with him. To rest at his feet, to be there with him. The point is, no matter how good the works are, they can never be a substitute for the righteousness that God offers us by faith through Jesus Christ. What we do with Jesus is we receive him into our hearts. And Paul was talking about this spiritual blindness that they had. And it was no excuse for their rejection of Christ. But on some grounds, there was hope and mercy regarding this. And Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1.13. He says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And that's why Paul's praying for them to come to the knowledge of who God is in his saving grace, that they would experience his mercy in their lives. And then in verse 3, he says this, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Although they were ignorant of how to reach God's righteousness through faith in Christ, and that's being the justification for a sinner, righteousness very simply means the right standing with God. It's in a right standing with him. But why? Why this statement established their own? It was self-righteousness. They were ignorant of how to become righteous in God, so they considered the alternative. The rejection of Christ Sometimes people, when they reject Christ, they make up their own things as they go along because they were proud. In their own hearts, they were making things up. And pride and self-righteousness, it's a heart condition that we have. It's about our heart. It's about being ignorant on who God is and his righteousness. And when they said they wanted to establish their own, it was so I can change what God says about himself into something that's more palatable, a little bit more tasty, and probably just a less, a lot less challenging than what God's word actually says. And by establishing this righteousness, our own self-righteousness, they end up creating their own idols, supporting their righteousness. 
And if I remember correctly, isn't that number one on the top 10 list of the 10 commandments, right? But that's what they were doing. It was imperative for them and for us to understand what God's righteousness is. And how do we do that? We do that through his written word, his character of his word. It's God's character, his whole character, equal in love and justice, forgiveness and mercy and grace, but also equal in his wrath towards sin. In verse 4, it says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be a righteousness for everyone who believes. Amen? Christ is the end of the law, and the justification only comes through Jesus. And it's for everyone. Paul's saying it's for the Jew and the Gentile. It's for everyone. And Jesus perfectly exemplified and fulfills God's purpose here on earth. He was the fulfillment of the law. But he also terminated that law because the law was powerless to save. In Acts 4.12, it says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only name that can save us. We can't save ourselves. And ever since the Israelites returned from their land, from the Babylonian captivity, in the temples, in the local synagogues, they were teaching about the one true God. They worshiped and they served him, and they were teaching his law. But they were so zealous for God, they even tried to improve on God's law. They wanted to improve on it. So they added their own traditions. They added things to them. And Paul himself says at one time he was zealous like that about the laws and traditions. In Galatians 1.13, it says this, For you have heard of my previous way of life of Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and extremely zealous for traditions of my father. Traditions. And Paul points out that while they were zealous for God, their zeal was not based on the knowledge of who God was. That Paul says that their zeal, they were uninformed and unenlightened. And Thomas Fuller says it like this zeal without knowledge is like fire without light. And that's exactly what they were. Paul was pointing beyond their blindness or their, their arrogance of who Jesus was and about a right relationship with God. Occasionally, I meet with someone who's been theologically misguided and, and misinformed about something, and they're very zealous about it. You know, sometimes it's a questionable leader or someone. And when I share my doubts about the ideas or the suggestions that they have, the frequent response that I get is very simply, but they're sincere, they're sincere about that. Unfortunately, though, sincerity is no substitute for the truth. Being sincere doesn't make a person right. Sincere Christians have plenty of zeal, but little knowledge. This was a perfect description of Paul or Saul before his conversion after meeting Christ. You can be sincere in your critiquing or your sin-sniffing. Have you ever heard that before? People like to sin-sniff. They like to critique people. 
They like to find faults in other people's, but they would be wrong. They would be sincerely wrong in doing that. Sincerity and devotion will never save the soul. Israel was ignorant of God's righteousness, not because they had never heard it, but because they refused to learn. They were unteachable. Unteachable because of pride. Do we ever experience that in our lives? Does pride make us unteachable that we can't learn? And these were the Jews that Paul was writing about. They refused to accept God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. He said this, but their zeal is not based on knowledge since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. It was an ignorance, a willful ignorance. The old saying is true that no one is so blind as the one who refuses to see. No one is so ignorant as the one who willingly ignores the truth. Amen. Jesus was the end of the law. He was the goal. He was the fulfillment of that. And Paul is saying that Christ is the end, the termination of that law, which means that every man can have a right relationship with God. The point is righteousness is available only through faith in Jesus Christ. Our right relationship with God. Then he goes on in verse 5. He's going to talk about Moses. He says, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. He's saying what he's very simply saying is if you want to live by the law, then you need to keep the law. What you really need to do is you need to keep working. You need to keep working. And that's not what we're called to do. Legalism in our life and in the church and our communities will always lead to death because no one can fulfill that righteousness. None of us can. But the Holy Spirit in our life and our church and our communities, on the other hand, will always lead to life because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It'll always lead to life. In verse 6, it says, But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. He's paraphrasing Moses in a farewell message. And Paul's applying this statement, this text, to Christ to demonstrate his accessibility to each and every one of us. And that Christ is accessible for our salvation. No one has to go to heaven to bring Christ down. Paul is saying, if you could do that, if you could get someone to go up to heaven and bring Christ down, there might be some hope for you. But since no one can do that, you have no hope. You're in a desperate situation because you're trying to do it on your own. And we can't do it on our own. In Proverbs 34, it says, Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Whose hands have gathered up the winds? Who has wrapped up the waters in the cloak? Who has established all ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is the name of his son? Surely you know it's Jesus. Our hope is in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. 
And Paul was saying that none of that is necessary because our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in the cross. He already lives among us. God's salvation is right here for everyone today who believes in Jesus. Hope is right in front of us. And the thing is, is Jesus meets us where we are all the time. We just need to respond. We need to receive his gift of salvation by God's grace. My grace is sufficient, is what he says. And then in verse 8, it says, By what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. Paul is saying that the word is near. Jesus is near and easily accessible to each and every one of us if we call upon his name. In Deuteronomy 30, 14, it says, The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so you may obey it. For those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, he's near, he's with us. The Holy Spirit lives in us to love the Lord our God with all our hearts. And it's about deeply applying his grace into our lives and into our heart and obeying him. In verse 9, it says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is not known through theology or philosophy, but through what is like a childlike simplicity. That is that you believe in your heart that he has risen and that he has died for your sins and that he is alive, a simple confession that Jesus is our Lord and to receive him. And what we're doing is we're telling the world that we believe that Jesus died for our sins and we simply confess this. And if you've ever heard someone ask, how do you become a Christian? Verses 9 and 10 that we're going to be ready to read are likely the most quoted verses when it comes to that. It's a beautiful answer to that. If you declare and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation is as close as your mouth and your heart. That's how close salvation is for us, to receive Jesus Christ into our lives. And then verse 10, it says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And I believe these two things are in a natural order. The heart first, because we're justified as sinners through our heart. Then we confess Christ's name with our mouth. And I've thought about this, and this is, why, why do you believe, why do we have to believe in our hearts first? Why didn't Paul say, in your mind? If you believe in your mind, but he said, in your heart first. And I would say that's because God wants your heart. He wants your heart first above all else. In Mark 12, 30, it says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's very simple that our minds can be swayed very easily, can't they? 
We can think one way and then there comes this new fact or this new thing that we see and we change our mind and we go along with it. We flip-flop, don't we? We flip-flop back and forth because our mind changes. But when there's something in our heart, it doesn't change daily. I always think back of when it comes to the heart is like, and there's not too many young people in here, but you remember when you had like your boyfriend or your girlfriend, right? And then they broke up with you. They turned their back on you. And what happened? Your heart was still drawn towards them, wasn't it? Your heart was still there. You still wanted to do that because our minds change constantly. But our heart doesn't change. But what our heart does is our heart breaks. Our heart breaks. And God's heart breaks for each and every person that is lost and that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he wants our hearts. We need to believe in our heart. It's not simply being rational, but it's about being emotional and intimate with our Lord and Savior with all of our hearts, being all in. And then verse 11, it says, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. I want to put this in context, what this is saying. Is Paul saying, not saying that Christians will never be put to shame or you'll be disappointed, right? Because we all know we're going to be disappointed in this life, right? The word says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world, right? Jesus has. But there will be times when people will let us down and the circumstances will change for the worst. And I try to tell people that, and I, and I say about myself, because if I haven't, I'm probably going to let you down sometime or another because I'm human. It's just what happens. Circumstances change for the worse sometimes. But what Paul is saying here is that God will always keep his promises to his children. For those who call upon him and receive Jesus Christ into his life, we live by the promises of God, not the explanations of the world. God will never fail to provide righteousness and salvation to those who believe in him. Whoever submits to Jesus' lordship will not be ashamed because God's word guarantees it. In verse 12, then it says this, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blessed all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Paul spells out this opportunity to be saved by faith. Jesus is available to everyone, the Jew and the Gentile. There's no distinction there. He's the Lord of all people, and that we're all able to receive this gift of grace. And God's way of salvation is not difficult. It's not complicated at all. We don't have to go anywhere to find Christ. Christ is near us. In other words, the gospel is with us right now. God is with us through the Holy Spirit, and he's available always and accessible to us. The sinner does not need to perform a difficult works to be saved. We just have to receive and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Salvation is by faith, by believing in our heart and receiving Jesus 
and becoming righteous before God. Then confessing with our mouth with no shame and that we will be saved. Paul quotes Joel 2.32 there when he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter said the same thing in his sermon at Pentecost. He made the same application to Jesus. And in Romans 3.23, it says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Instead of the Jews having a special righteousness of their own through the law, now they're being declared that everyone is a sinner. And Paul declared that he was as much a sinner as the Gentiles that they condemned. Paul was emphasizing the difference between the righteousness in the law and the righteousness in faith. And I have on the screen some of those contrasts. The righteousness of the law was only for the Jews. It was based on work. It was about self-righteousness. It cannot save and it leads to pride. Faith, though, is for everyone. Faith righteousness for everyone. It comes by faith alone. God's righteousness brings salvation as we call on the Lord and we glorify God. That's his righteousness. As a Christ follower, we live a Christ-centered life and we live a God-centered life. Now, Paul has explained the reasons why Israel has rejected Christ. Now he'll move on to the remedy for them. In verse 14, it says, how then can we call on the one that we have not believed in? And how can we believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can we hear without someone preaching to them? Paul shows how necessary it is for us to continue preaching the gospel as he did, regardless of the objections of the people around us. We must take God's message of hope and salvation to everyone, the good news, to our loved ones, our neighbors, over coffee. What about at our work or our jobs, our schools, or even at Publix or Winn-Dixie when we're buying groceries? How will they hear about the good news if not from us? And the good news is simply that the penalty for every sin that we've ever committed has been paid for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. God is a Lord that is rich in mercy and grace, his unsearchable riches in Jesus Christ when we first believed in him. What amazing grace is that? And then verse 15 says, And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In order for someone to hear, someone must preach to them. They must be sent. And sometimes a lot of people are unnecessarily discouraged and sometimes depressed. And people become self-focused and they become self-absorbed. And the reason for that I believe it's because they're not sharing the good news. If we have the good news on our tongue all the time, telling people about that good news, sharing the gospel with them, we wouldn't be discouraged because we have hope and that they have hope. Other translations say that how lively are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. All believers are to live a gospel-centered life, each and every one of us. What a picture of beauty, those lively and happy feet. When you think of happy feet, you think of them little penguins, right? You ever seen that movie, Happy Feet? 
But oh, what beautiful feet sharing the glorious good news, the news of the gospel of Jesus. Is God calling you to take part in that? Is he calling you to give the message of hope to your neighbors in your community? People who may not have heard the good news, take those steps, be those beautiful feet, and share the gospel. And verse 16 says, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. And this was sad because Isaiah correctly called this and he would say that not all people, he prophesied that not all people were going to believe and they didn't. And it says, for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Now, this passage is usually and most often used in a missionary program about the, hearing the word. It says, who has believed this message? But his first application was to the nation of Israel. The only way an unbelieving Jew could be saved was by calling on the name of the Lord. But before they calling, they had to hear the word. The remedy for Israel's rejection was hearing the word. God's word creates faith in our hearts of the hearer and believing in Jesus Christ. This means that they needed to believe that Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah of Israel and that they needed to believe in his death and his resurrection, trusting God and also believing him. In verse 18 it says, But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Some, some might have thought that they were going to argue with Paul about, did Israel really hear this? Did they really hear the message of Christ? And it's, he quotes then this. This comes out of Psalm 19.4. It says, Their voice has gone out into the earth, all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. This psalm emphasizes the revelation of God in this world. God reveals himself to us in his creation and in his word. It's about nature and about the word of God. And Israel had the benefit of seeing both. They saw God's work, they saw the work in creation, and they received the word through the scriptures. Israel heard, but they did not obey. And it was interesting because Jesus said how many times when he taught the multitudes, when he taught the crowds, he said to them, he who has ears, let them hear. Because how many times did they hear, but they didn't listen? They weren't listening to the word. And God's intention was for all the world to come to salvation. And then in verse 19, again, it says, again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. Sometimes when we want to get people's attention, what do we do? We make them angry or we make them jealous, envious of something that's going on around them. And then in verse 20, it says, and Isaiah boldly says, I was, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. What amazing grace is that? When Israel rejected their Messiah, 
God sent the gospel to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. One reason that God sent this gospel to the Gentiles was to provoke them, I believe. He wanted to make the Jews jealous of what was going on. Remember how the Jewish believers were shocked, how shocked they were when Peter went to the Gentiles? Oh, you can't do that. What did it do? It woke them up, though, didn't it? It wakes us up, and it was waking them up as well. And Peter made it very clear that God sent him and that both the Jew and the Gentile would be saved through their faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone would be saved. And this was an act of grace to both the Jew and the Gentile. And then in verse 21, it says this, But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Wow, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? Are we ever that way? Anybody disobedient and obstinate? I'm raising it, Cindy. She's looking at me. I'm just... <laughs> so, but then it says, all day long, I have held up my hands to this obstinate and disobedient people. Paul's reference in God's word is in Isaiah 65, that all day long certainly refers to the present day, which is today, the day of salvation, grace for which we live in right now. Still, God waited patiently for Israel with his hands held out to receive them should they turn back to him. And for us, sometimes we turn away from God, right? But he's always there waiting for us to come back. He's always ready to receive us back. The goodness of God chases us down all the time. Some people are just spiritually blind and they can't see that. But God's saying, I'm holding my hands out for you all day. And what those hands are, those are the outstretched arms of Jesus Christ on the cross for each and every one of us. God wants us to share the gospel with everyone because we're all sinners. And while there are people who have never heard the gospel, and that may never believe. And there are people, some people in our church right now who have never believed. And sometimes those people are the most responsive to the message because they've never heard it. And they long for that. And God's arms are outstretched for them. And for us, appearances are deceiving we can't see into a person's heart, so we need to tell everyone about the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't know who's going to respond to the gospel, whether they're going to receive it or not. That's not for us to do. That's not for us to know. Our role is to tell people about the saving grace of Jesus Christ and what he's done in our lives and the change that happened through him when we received him and the change that they can receive as well. And as we get ready to close, like Paul, we should pray for the Jewish people that don't know Christ and people everywhere who don't know Jesus that are lost. And we need to live a life 
of prayer, a gospel-centered life that we're praying for the salvation of the lost people all around us. But we do this with compassion and patience for those who do not understand Christ yet because they're out there. And sometimes what we have to do when we spread the gospel is we have to use words because they look at our example of who we are. Are we compassionate, loving people? That's what they see, and then they would be receptive to hear us. And we pray for the lost, that their lives would be changed as they encounter our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that they would experience his love and grace, and that they would receive him into their hearts, and that they would be able to share their hope in Jesus Christ someday, and that they would come to the knowledge of his saving grace in their lives. Oh, what it would be if we all had those beautiful, loving, happy feet sharing the gospel, the good news with the rest of the world. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Father, our desire is that no one would be lost, that our heart's desire would be like Paul, that we would pray that they would come to know the knowledge of your saving grace in their lives, that they would receive you into their heart, and that they would share the gospel as well. And for us tonight, Father, may we have those lively, happy feet to go and spread the gospel, to tell people about Jesus Christ, to share your love to a lost and hurting world. And the only hope that we have is in Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your Holy Spirit raining down upon us. May we all just be aware of your presence more and more. And Father, if there's someone here tonight that doesn't know you, that doesn't have a relationship with you, just want to give them an opportunity to receive you tonight by just praying this prayer. Father, I know I'm a sinner, and I want to receive you into my life. I know that you died on the cross for my sins, and I repent of my way of life. And I want to follow you all the days of my life. I believe that you rose from the dead for me. And that you are seated at the right hand of the Father. And I want to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.